Hello and welcome to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. My name is Anna Adima and I am a PhD candidate in history at the University of York. Today I will be joined by fellow PhD student April Jackson. April is an ESLC funded PhD candidate at the University of Leicester. She specialises in histories of punishment, governance, humanitarianism and gender in the British Empire. Her most recent publication examines the role of international organisations in shaping and countering practices of child labour in British colonial Africa during the interwar period. Her doctoral research, which you'll be discussing today, examines the laws, practices and perceptions of judicial execution across the British Empire between 1815 and 1980. Before we jump in, I should add as a content warning that graphic descriptions of violence will be discussed, so some listeners may feel it is best to skip this particular episode. Thank you so much, April, for joining us today for the Scottish Centre of Global History podcast. We're really excited to have you on. Your research sounds absolutely fascinating, and I can't wait to hear more about it. So thank you. It's great to be here. Um, I'm quite excited to talk about my research today. Um, So I'm going to be talking about my PhD project. um, And this is seeking to understand the use of capital punishment within the British Empire. Capital punishment was spread by the British across their territories right from the inception of the empire. And in a lot of colonies, the traditional mode of execution in Britain was used, with criminals being hanged by the net until they were declared dead. The death penalty was a crucial tool in the control of slave labour throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. And then in the 19th and 20th centuries, execution was a key instrument used by the British to colonise new populations, to maintain control and to challenge any anti-colonial rebellions that emerged. I'm still in the early stages of this research. So rather than discussing the findings in any depth, I thought I'd use this space to address why a global approach to the study of execution is really beneficial. There are a lot of really great works that that exist that recognise the role of capital punishment in the British Imperial project, but they typically focus on a single colony or region. There's some notable examples, including works on the use of hanging as a tool of controlling slave labour in the Caribbean, works that highlighted the prevalence of hanging in Kenya during the Malmö Rebellion of the 50s, and pieces exploring the use of cannons to execute Indian rebels during the Indian Revolt of 1857. My thesis draws on a lot of these works, it seeks to integrate these typically localised histories into a broader global story. I argue that across the empire, execution was a vital political tool used by colonial authorities to quell anti-colonial thought and movements. I am taking a case study approach to understanding this, focusing on Fiji, Natal in what is now modern day KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, and the ex-strait settlements in modern day Malaysia and Singapore. These case studies are diverse in their geography, but they have similar demographics and histories. Each of my case studies received indentured labourers from India to increase the workforce between 1834 and 1917. Each also had diverse populations, and crucially for me, each experienced a period of upheaval which was met with an increase in capital punishment. In Fiji, this came in 1874, as colonisers sought to expand control beyond Fiji's coastlines and to gain influence of the interior lands. In a conflict that was laboured by the governor of the time as the Little Wars, public execution of rebel leaders were used to show the consequences of rebelling against the British. In Natal, a series of rebellions and conflicts occurred in the late 19th century. Examples of this include the 1879 Anglo-Zulu War, the Second Boer War in 1899, and the 1906 Bambatha Rebellion. In each of these cases, prisons experienced overcrowding and the number of executions spiked. This pattern was once again repeated in 1915 with the Singapore Mutiny, which saw 47 individuals executed in front of crowds as large as 15,000 people. 
These examples demonstrated to me that the use of execution to maintain the British Empire was a pattern repeated across the globe. I believe a global approach is crucial to understanding the nature of capital punishment in British colonies. Empire served as a network for the transfer of people, but also of ideas, laws, practices, and this was very much the, regard, uh, the case with regard to capital punishment. This is demonstrated in a case I've uncovered during my research of a failed execution in Fiji in 1872. This is the story of a man called Antonio Franks. Franks was an Australian who was traveling around the Pacific Islands taking part in a process called blackbirding, which involved kidnapping Pacific Islanders and transporting them to plantations where their labor could be exploited. During one of these journeys, Franks found himself in a dispute with a fellow shipmate, Thomas Muir, as, um, as both wanted the company of the same woman. This dispute escalated and resulted in Franks murdering Thomas Muir. For this crime, Franks was sentenced to death in Fiji. His was the first execution to take place on the island. However, on the day of the execution, a series of unfortunate events unfolded. Firstly, the execution was delayed by a day after the sheriff decided to postpone for reasons that are unknown. A large storm meant that the rope that was intended to be used for the execution was left exposed to the elements for a day and had to be placed over a fire to dry out. This damaged the integrity of the rope. The Fiji Times reported that the day also changed the plan for the execution as the hangman refused to undertake his duty on the day and two constables searched across the island to find a replacement, eventually settling for a man whose boat was moored in Lubuka Harbour and who said he would be willing to do it. When Franks was hanged the next morning, it was reported that he hanged for six minutes before coming back to life. The event, described at the time as a disastrous miscarriage of justice, was put down to the fact the rope was too large, the knot was too tight, rope was too damp, and that it had been placed around Frank's neck incorrectly by the amateur hangman. After the spectacle of the failed execution, it was decided that Franks had faced his sentence and suffered for his crimes. He was given free passage out of Fiji and was later reported to be living happily in San Francisco. The case is best understood within a global context. Franks and his executioner were both Australian. George IV was in Britain and he was asked to confirm that there should be no second attempt at the execution. To prevent the, this event ever happening again, notes were sent to the Metropole and to many of the colonies about what the best practice was for executions in tropical climates. The event was reported on across the empire and it was a significant news piece in Australia and India. And Franks eventually resettled in the US. His case unfolded within the territory of Fiji, but it was truly a global event. A global approach can also be of critical importance in understanding British history. A lot of the actions within the empire had a huge impact in the metropole. This is well demonstrated in the transfer from public to private executions. When Britain abandoned the practice of public hanging in 1868, they pointed to the abandonment of the practice in the Australian colonies. New South Wales had abandoned public execution in 1853, Victoria in 1854, and Tasmania in 1856. The fact that the practice of executing prisoners in front of a crowd was outlawed in some colonies 10 to 15 years before it was outlawed in Britain demonstrates an interesting dynamic at play on a global scale. However, I think one of the most important reasons that a global approach to, this, to the history of capital punishment is important is its timeliness. The study brings to the fore the violence of British imperial past. Capital punishment was an embodiment of a culture of colonial violence that not only existed throughout the British Empire, but which was foundational to its existence. By focusing on a judicial form of violence which existed globally during times of peace and upheaval, I hope to advance the works of historians who focused on individual moments or periods of brutality in the history of the British Empire and to further illuminate the structural violence of the empire. Thank you so much, April. That sounds absolutely fascinating, if also very, very heavy. Um, so I'll just, you know, kick off our little Q&A session and ask you out of personal curiosity, I suppose, what motivated you to do this research and why do you feel that it matters um, within your field and within global history as a whole? 
Um, I actually think the best way to answer this question is to kind of go in with a modern day statistic. So according to the most recent data, 70% of the world's countries have abolished the death penalty. But if we look at the territories that once made up the British Empire, only 46% of these have abolished the death penalty, either in law or in practice. And I think for me, I find this to be really staggering. The fact that more than half the countries who were once in the British Empire continue to use the death penalty is really problematic. So my research ultimately stems from the fundamental question of why this is the case. I truly believe that research can have real world consequences. And I believe that by illuminating the violence of the British Empire to modern day audiences who are increasingly receptive to hearing about it, we can make a difference. Um, I also believe that by linking modern day capital punishment to historical imperial violence, it's possible to connect abolitionists and campaigners working on decolonization and indigenous rights. I hope that this work can contribute to an argument against capital punishment that can stand alongside those that bring forward by modern day practitioners, lawyers and campaigners to show that violence and injustice are commonly seen in capital cases and that that's a historical legacy. Fantastic. Thank you so much, April. That's fascinating. Um, now, could I ask, could you tell us a bit about your research methodology, what kind of sources and archives you're using, um, how you're accessing these and what challenges COVID-19 may present to you for your research? Yeah, so my research is actually really, really global in its influence. So I obviously have to then access global archives. That's the nature of the research I'm doing. Um, so it's my intention COVID pending to go and spend some time in each of my case studies. So in Fiji, in South Africa and in Singapore, Malaysia, um, where I'll plan to access archives, but also to visit some of the sites where executions happened, to meet with people who are campaigning against these movements um, and also to meet with people who are working on these issues in the universities that I'm of the place I'm studying, because I think that talking to people who are at the forefront of researching this is so important. In the meantime, whilst COVID has been the case, I've been using a lot of online sources. Um, thankfully, the pandemic's actually really helped promote digitization projects. Um, and I've been really fortunate with getting access to this. Um, I also have a lot of access to the National Archives in Britain, where problematically, of course, a lot of archives from the colonies still exist here in Britain. So I'm gonna be accessing all of these sources um, newspapers, government papers, debates, blue books, pulling together statistics, but also real life stories like that of Antonio Franks that I've talked about today, because I think that that's where we really start to understand what we mean by execution in the empire. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And I really hope, you know, we'll all get vaccinated soon and that you're able to travel to all these places for your research. Me too. <laughs> um, and can I ask, how did your interest in global history come about um, and specifically in relation to your research? So I'm actually really, really fortunate in this regard because during my undergraduate degree, I came into contact with histories that were a lot more global than traditional history courses I've been exposed to before. Um, so I was able to take modules that covered African, Indian and Latin American history, as well as modules with a more global history approach to topics like migration or science. And I found a lot of these modules to be really eye-opening. And I went through a period where my view of the world really changed away from kind of the Eurocentric view that's promoted in the history curriculum of British schools. And I became more interested in the histories that we aren't as familiar with and that have shaped a lot of our daily lives, but in ways most of us don't think about. So finding that identity as a global historian was a process. But for me, I definitely trace my interest back to the African history modules that I studied during my undergraduate degree. I remember instantly feeling there was a lot of history that I'd been ignorant to my whole life and wanting to contribute to expanding knowledge about that. 
in my second year, the course for Africanists was all about African developments, but in the Cold War. And this really situated African nations within a global context for me. And I became more interested in the movement of people and ideas and the way that events in one country could dramatically affect other places. During my master's, I then refocused this and looked more at connections and movements in a sustained way. I completed two pieces of work that centered ideas of migration. The first was on indentured labor and the second was on the experiences of African students in the USSR. So by the time I was entering into my PhD, I felt really situated as a global historian, but I'm definitely still expanding my knowledge and position within that field. It's something that's constantly evolving for me. Thank you so much, April. That's fascinating. Um, and now kind of going back to your actual research, um, in light of, you know, the current Black Lives Matter movement and also um, the movement towards decolonizing, you know, the, the academy, the curriculum. And I was wondering whether you could talk to us about the concept of decolonizing capital punishment and violence, if that's yeah, something you come across in your research. Yeah, it's this is one of the most significant things that I want my research to be part of doing. I think it's decolonization is a really important movement. Um, in a lot of ways, it's become a politically charged phrase in recent years. And a lot of people, I think, find it a trendy thing to say you're working on decolonizing a place, a subject, a conversation. But some of the work out there doing this is incredible and pioneering. And I believe the theory of decolon decoloniality actually lends itself perfectly to conversations around penal reform. So I believe that a lot of the modern day laws relating to capital punishment and to punishment more broadly can be traced back to colonial times. I said that the wave of formal political decolonization that occurred in the mid 20th century didn't lead to an end to colonial ideas, forms of power and Eurocentricity. The structures of the judiciary, the rituals and practices of the courtroom and gallows, they're all deeply situated within colonial history. And for me, the ongoing ability of the state to kill its citizens is a legacy and gruesome reminder of the structural violence of the British Empire. Beyond this, there's a structural relationship between penal regimes and legacies of colonialism. The modern day penal regime reinforces the power dynamics that were constructed during colonial times. Individuals from ethnic groups who face the most discrimination and exploitation under colonial rule continue to be disproportionately victimized by the brutal and violent arm of the state. This is seen in New Zealand where approximately one in every two prisoners who have a long sentence is indigenous. You know, from the practices right through to the ideologies underpinning it, the practice of capital punishment is deeply intertwined with colonialism. And I think one of my aims as a global historian is to draw on the theories of scholars around the world. And I'm really inspired by the Latin American school of decoloniality. Scholars like Walter Mignolo and Annabel Chiano, they take on the view advanced that colonial rule sorts of universalized Western beliefs and practices. And I think that applying their ideas to my own work, I'm able to make some preliminary comments on what decolonization of capital punishment might entail. I believe that decolonizing capital punishment is deeply intertwined with the call to abolish the death penalty. Um, I don't think we can decolonize without abolishing. Um, I don't believe there's a realistic way that independent state can have the power to kill without reproducing historical injustices and inequalities. I think one of the most important steps to decolonize punishment regimes is already starting to happen. And that is the process of judicial dialogue across ex-colonies with abolitionist movements in retentionist countries engaging in discussion with those nations who've undergone the process of abolition since independence. I think a decolonized penal regime wouldn't replace capital punishment with an increasing incarceration because this was also a tool of, of colonialism. So it would rather entail innovative approaches to tackling crime 
And I think these should emerge in consultation with populations and should be designed to support rather than criminalize and harm communities who were harmed by the legacies of colonial rule. This is of course all really theoretical, but it leads into my final point on this matter, which is that whilst I can work alongside other scholars to uncover information and to delink colonial histories and modern punishments in theory, the main voices that should shape any efforts to decolonize penal regimes should be the individuals from the countries in question. And I'd always seek to elevate these voices rather than my own. Thank you so much, April. That's absolutely fascinating. And this kind of um, leads its way perfectly to my next question. Um, I'm very interested in the idea of emotion with regard to the archive. And I was wondering, um, how do you mentally and intellectually grapple with the oftentimes violent nature of your sources and, the co and its content? I think this is a really significant question. I've been really aware throughout my research that I didn't want to become desensitized to the difficult content that I have to interact with. I frequently remind myself that I'm dealing with the lives and deaths of real people. They had lives, experiences, families far beyond the small snippet right at the end of their life that I'm attempting to access. I also strive to be aware of the human side of my research. There are inevitable moments where this hits closer to home than others though. Examples of this have included viewing a skull of an executed individual from Fiji, which is held by a collector of historical phrenological, phrenological artifacts, and viewing propaganda videos that were recorded of executions by firing squad during the Anglo-Zulu war. Over the course of my research, I expect to have a lot more of these moments. Um, for example, in South Africa, I plan to visit the site of one of the gallows and to view the death row, which has been turned into a museum recently. There are also some stories that affect me a lot more than others. For instance, the botched execution that I talked about today, that's told in graphic detail in newspapers across the empire. And reading the details of this, of course, triggered a series of emotions, both of anger and upset. I think for me, one of the most motivating forces in moments where I do struggle with the content I'm dealing with is to remind myself how important stories are. The human side of empire is one of the most important things that we can reveal as historians. And I hope that by revealing some of the human experiences of colonial violence, I can contribute to that ongoing dialogue about Britain's imperial past. I definitely feel a significant sense of responsibility when I'm telling these stories about telling them in a responsible and accurate way. But I also think that's true of all historians, not just those of us who would deal with such graphic and tragic matters. Yeah, thank you very much, April. And I think that's so important as historians that we keep reminding ourselves it's so easy to like get lost in the study of figures and statistics that these are actually human lives um, involved in what we're studying. Um, so I guess my final question is, um, what are the next steps for your research? And do you have any concrete plans um, career-wise? I mean, obviously it's impossible to plan in this current pandemic, but do you have like a vague idea? Um, well, I'm still in the early stages of my PhD, so I'm definitely hoping to conduct overseas travel, um, and that should be in the next 18 months or so. Um, I'm also planning on conducting an internship, which is hopefully going to be in the Library of Congress in the US. Um, and then I guess just to complete the write-up of my thesis, and then long term, I'm definitely striving to find a career within academia, but I guess where remains a mystery for now. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, April, and good luck with everything. I hope you're able to travel to all these really cool places for your research. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed producing it. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can visit our website, globalhistory.org.uk, email us on scgh.dundee.ac.uk, or follow us on Twitter at UODSCGH. Thank you.